Revelation 4, verse 1. After this, I looked. Behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cardinal or Sardin, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was... And is, and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things. And by your will, they existed. And were created. What a scene. What a passage. Just imagine you're sitting at home, there's a knock on the door. And uh, you open the door and it's your neighbor. And your neighbor says, hey, look, you know, I've, I've been sitting around thinking about God. And uh, I know you're a Christian, and uh, I've got these thoughts about God. I, I tell you, could you help me? Could you sit down with me and explain to me who God is? What would you think? Could you explain to me who he is? I've had these thoughts about him, and I'm not really sure if I'm thinking right or not, but I know you go to church, and... I know you read your Bible and you are a Christian, and so I, I, I assume if anybody could explain to me who God is, it, it would have to be a Christian, right? I mean, you say you believe in Him. Where would you start? How would you go about it? What would you say to them? I'm, I'm sure we would say, well, yeah, let, let, me, let me try it. Let me give it a shot here. And uh, let, me, let me see. You might start with, like, well, I know the Bible says this. I know the Bible says that God is love. Right? I know that's what the Bible says about Him. And I believe, yeah, He is love. And we see this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. God is love. God 
is love. And then you might say, well, yeah, I know too. And, and it says also there in 1 John, God is light. God is light. You turn to 1 John chapter 1 and show them in verse 5 there. And then you remember too, wait a minute, there's something in John 4 when Jesus is having this encounter with this Samaritan woman and he's talking about worship. And you know it says, and you turn to John chapter 4 and you show him verse 24 there and it says, God is spirit. God is love. God is light. God is spirit. And then you might go to some of his attributes. You might say, well, you know, I also know that God is holy, God is righteous, God is sovereign, uh, all of these things. God is just, and you, you begin to talk about that. Maybe you go to his works. Well, I also know that the Bible opens this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So, so God is the creator of all that exists. And then you, you, you think through that and you go, he created everything and everything got messed up and sin came. And also, God is a redeemer. God is one who saves sinners. And so you may start to talk about redemption and what God does in redemption. The, the bottom line is, what you would draw on is what you know of God from the Bible, right? I mean, if your neighbor said, hey, who is God? You wouldn't sit there and say, oh, I don't know. Let's look in the encyclopedia. I don't know, let's Google it. I mean, Google's got all the answers, right? My gosh, put in who is God in Google and see what you get. Imagine wading through that mess. No, what you would do as a believer, one who believes in the authority of Scripture, you would take the Bible and you begin to say, this is what the Bible says about God. This is what God's revealed to us about Himself. The one thing we cannot do, and the one thing we must not do, and the one thing that we're so prone to do, is start to describe God. I can't describe Him. Think about it. What am I going to compare him to? Oh, well, God is like love. No, he is love. You see, the moment I start to say, well, God is like love, God is like a loving father. No, he's not like a loving father. He is a loving father. You see the difference? Once I start trying to describe him and say he is like, then I'm in danger of breaking the second commandment. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not create any image. Right? But that's a temptation for us. And we're trying to communicate this. We're trying to get somebody to understand what it is and, uh, about God that we believe and who he is and so forth. We, but we, we can't. We can't make God like us. That's another temptation that we might want to do. We, we might want to try to put it in a language that, well, he's, 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 he's sort of like us. No, he's not. The Bible's clear. He's not like us. In fact, he says, I'm not like you at all. My ways are not your ways. I'm not like you. There's something that theologians and the old theologians and used to talk about, and they used a word that, that we don't use a lot when we talk about God, and that's the word transcendent. What does that mean? I mean, I probably not going to sit down with my neighbor and they come over and they say, who is God? Oh, he's the transcendent being. 
What? What does that mean? What it means is simply this. He's separate from us. He's separate from his creation. He's the creator. We're the creation. He's transcendent. He's above. He's beyond. He's apart from. He's not subject to the limitations of his creation. We are. We just went through a time change, right? I forgot it. The only way I knew it was my phone automatically changed times. And I was up and I was like, why is it dark? And then I looked at my phone and went, oh, time change. Thank goodness for technology in some ways, right? Who knows, I may still be sleeping. But we're subject to these limitations. I can't be everywhere at once. I can't. Sometimes feel like I need to be, but I can't. I can't know everything. I'm sometimes supposed to know everything, especially when you got kids in class and they look at you as the teacher and, don't you know everything? No, I don't know everything. I'm not all-powerful. I can't do anything I, I wish to do, right? I can't do that. There have been plenty of times where I wish I could have, you know, healed someone or I wish I could have, you know, supernaturally done something in a situation. I can't do that. Now, God could do that through me. But you see very quickly, we, we are subject to the limitations of, of, of how he's created us. God's not. God's outside of all that. He's not subject to that. He can be everywhere. He can be everywhere present. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. How do, you, how, do you, how do you describe that? How do you put that? Well, God is like. What is he like? Google? All-knowing? Everywhere? All-powerful? No, Google's not. He is not part of his creation. He is separate from his creation. And that's what transcendence means. When we say that God is transcendent, that's what we mean. Now, why spend time on that? Why look at that? It's because the passage that we're about to go into in Revelation chapter 4 screams this at us. What we see and what John saw in chapter 4, he sees this vision of the throne room of God. And you need to understand, chapter 4 and chapter 5 work together. We are now in the second vision. The first vision, first three chapters, we are now in the second vision of the book of Revelation. And what he sees when he looks and sees and he's caught up into heaven and he sees the very throne room of God. There's nothing on earth like this. There's nothing on earth like this. And it screams at us that God is separate from his creation. God is not part of his creation. And we'll see that as we work our way through this. Yet, even though he's transcendent, see, this is, this is the thing. When God reveals Himself, He reveals Himself, and we can know Him, but we can't fully know Him. And so He reveals Himself as this one separate, apart, above, not part of His creation, the Creator. Yet at the same time, He's personal. At the same time, I can know Him. He's personal. It's not that God created everything and then just sort of took off and said, I'm going to go hide for a while. You guys work it out, figure it out. No, he's personal. He's active in his creation. We can know him. It's an amazing thing. And we see that 
in this. We particularly see it in chapter 5. Because what happens in chapter 4, there's this vision of God, the throne room of God. And then it moves very quickly in chapter 5 to redemption. God, and this is what He did, He redeemed. And we see Christ, we see God, we see Christ. And in a, in a way, chapters 4 and 5 set the stage for the whole book from this point on. It sets the stage for what is about to come. And so in this chapter 4, in this first vision of the throne room of God, it sort of unfolds in two ways. And the first way that it unfolds is it unfolds in the setting of it. We see the setting of all of this, what happens with John, what he's told, where he is, and so forth. And then all of a sudden, bam, there's five things that John sees. And they're amazing things that he sees here. Now look at verse 1 in chapter 4, the setting. This is the command, and he says, after This I looked. The after this, it's two times here. You see it after this, the first part of verse 1. And then when you see towards the end, I I will show you what must take place after this. It appears again. After this just simply means it's next in sequence. The first after this is after the first vision. So after the first vision, after that, this is what... He saw, I looked and behold, there was a door. Let me say this about the second after this, because some, there are some interpretations of the book of Revelation that go something like this. There are some who break the book of Revelation down and say the second after this is obviously when John is caught up into heaven, John represents the church. And so what you're seeing in the first verse of chapter four is the rapture of the church. So after the first vision, John sees, and he's caught up into heaven, and John representing the church. And then when he says, but once, uh, uh, when he says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. In other words, what follows from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 19, the after this is after the church is raptured. So that Revelation 4 to Revelation 19 is basically the seven-year tribulation period. And then you get to chapter 20. The millennium, and then you get to 21, 22, and heaven and all eternity. Now, that may very well be the time sequence of the end, but that is not what the book of Revelation, that is not what John's pointing out here. You can't make that fit with verse 1 of chapter 4. It's just not there. Doesn't fit the context. The after this is just simply after. It's the next thing in sequence. After the first vision, Here's the second vision. That's all he's simply saying. So I think it's wrong to try to force into this a view of the end times that sees the rapture of the church in verse 1, seven-year tribulation, chapter 4 to 19, then the millennium in chapter 20, and make that sort of fit this. Besides, why, why, then, why even read chapter 4 through 19? Why would we even bother with it? Why even bother with after this if the after this is we're not even here? What would that have? What, what meaning would that have to the people that John's writing to? See, it, it raises some issues. But bottom line for me is it just doesn't fit the context of what he's saying. So with that in mind, he says, after this, I looked. After the next thing, this is the next thing. I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. As he looks, this door is already opened. It's already open. Now, this is not the door of Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, or Revelation 
uh, 10. This is is a door in which not only is he going to be able to see, he's going to be caught up through this door. And he says, I look, I saw and behold a door. And it's already been opened. The door standing open in heaven and the first voice. It's not as if this is the first voice that John hears in the second vision. What he's saying is, this is the first voice that spoke to me in the first vision. Where did that voice speak to him? Remember chapter 1, verse 10? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, first vision, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So in the second vision, he says, I heard that first voice again. That first voice. Who was the first voice? It was Christ. Who was it that's speaking to him? It's Christ. So standing in heaven, this door is open, and on the first voice which I had heard, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, and this is what that voice said. Come up here. It's a command. Come up here. And he says to him, I will show you what must take place after this. Now again, after this, I think is just simply after the first vision. This is what's going to happen. Here, the second vision started. And now let me show you what's going to take place. This, this second vision is going to run through a large part of the book of Revelation. The second vision. Uh, Revelation unfolds in four visions. We've seen the first one, chapter 1, verse 10. We've dealt with that, first three chapters. Now this is the second vision. The third's going to come about chapter 17. And it's, John's going to say something like this, I was carried away in the Spirit. And then there's going to be a final vision in chapter 21, verse 10, where he talks again about being carried away in the Spirit. So you could look at the book of Revelation in, in these four visions. He has these four visions. All of them have to do something of the working of the Holy Spirit and what John sees and what he understands and what he tries to communicate. Now he's going to try to to, uh, communicate to us what he sees in the throne room. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. I mean, if you were to ask John, man, John, you know, sometimes, you know, you go to the police and something happens and uh, they're trying to identify a suspect and, you know, what one of the things they want to do, hey, let's get a sketch artist, right? And you sit there and you describe the person and, and there's a person drawing and you get through and they show you the picture and they say, is this him? Oh, yeah, that's him. No, wait a minute, his eyes are a little different. No. Imagine John sitting down and, 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 and saying, hey, John, here's a sketch artist. Now, sketch what you, what you saw. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. There's no way. I mean, you look at it and you go, what in the world is that? What in the world is that? And again, what it's screaming at us is, and we'll see as we get through this chapter, is God's not like us. What is revealed about Him is that He's not like us. But yet, in the same time, we can know Him. So, Heaven's opened up. John's going to see. You remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? Stephen's being stoned at the end of Acts chapter 7. It says that heaven opened up. He looked into heaven and what did he see? He saw Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. You know that's the only place it says that he was standing? Every other place, when Paul mentions him, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's being stoned. He's about to die. 
And I love what some of the older writers used to, used to say about this, and I, I, I think they may, they may have hit it, that what's happening is Jesus is standing, welcoming Stephen into heaven. Stephen was the first martyr, right? At least that we have recorded for us. I think it's a beautiful picture. He's, 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 he's about to be stoned, he's about to die, and Jesus stands and welcomes Stephen into heaven. Doors open. John's about to be caught up. He's about to see. Paul, remember Paul? Paul says, I know a man, speaking of himself, and he says, I know a man that was caught up into the third heaven. The third heaven being the very dwelling place of God. That's where this is. This is the dwelling place of God. Make, make, make no mistake about that. He's not being called up into sort of the atmosphere. He's not being called up into sort of like where Mars is. Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven, which is the very dwelling place of God. He says, when I saw it, there's no language to describe it. There's no way I could describe what I saw. Well, John's going to tell us plainly what he saw. He's going to try to convey it in language that maybe we can understand. But, man, what he sees... In the transcendence of God, he sees something so majestic, so brilliant. There's no way to put this into some kind of image. There's no way. How are you going to carve this out and put it on a mantle? How are you going to do that? Can't do it. You can't do it. And then he says, the second part of the setting here and setting the, the, the sort of the scene, the setting the tone for this vision. After there's the command, you were to come up here, you were to come into heaven, the very dwelling place of God. He says, verse 2, the first part of verse 2, at once, immediately, I was in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit. Now, the debate rages about whether John went into some trance-like state we know he's on the Isle of Patmos. We know he's been banished there. And so was he in some trance-like state seeing this? Or, or was he actually physically transported in through a door into the very dwelling place of God and he actually sees some of this stuff? The debate rages. What's interesting, though, is you look at this vision and you see very clearly this part of the vision, the scene is in heaven, Right? I mean, what he's seeing, he's seeing in heaven. What he sees in chapter 5, he's seeing. This is taking place, and this is in heaven. But then you get to chapter 10, and the scene's back on earth. What he's describing and what he's talking about, he's back on earth. And then all of a sudden, chapter 11, verse 15, bam! There's the scene in heaven again. And then he's back on earth again, chapter 12. And then 14, bam! He's back in heaven again. So is it that he's physically being transported up, down, up, down? Or is it that he is in some trance-like state in which he's being carried there? There's these scenes in heaven. There are these scenes on earth. And sometimes when you read through it, it gets kind of hard. You have to understand. You have to pay attention to where you are in the book of Revelation. And what's happening and what's going on. But what he says is, I was in the Spirit. He says in chapter 10, or chapter 1, verse 10, in the first vision, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
He'll say in the third vision, I was carried away in the Spirit. He'll say in the fourth vision, I was carried away in the Spirit. John ain't making this stuff up. He's not. What John is doing is he's writing, and the book of Revelation is what's called apocalyptic literature. Now understand about apocalyptic literature. We dealt with this in Daniel. Apocalyptic literature, sometimes people say, oh, that's bad stuff. That's about the bad stuff that's going to happen at the end. There's part of that, but that's not all there is to apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is a way of communicating, and that's not all the book of Revelation is. Oh, it's just the bad stuff that's going to happen at the end. And you've probably, and since we started the book of Revelation, you've probably been like, hey, come on, man, let's get to it, man. i got to know, is this coronavirus the deal? i got to know, is it the plague? i got to know, when's he coming? i got to know, when's it going to break out? When do I leave here? When do I go get my shelter? When do I stockpile my guns? Right? Come on, that's what the book of Revelation is about, isn't it? There's part of it. There is an unfolding of some things that are going to happen, and they're horrible. But you also have to understand, and that's why chapter 4, and that's why chapter 5 set the tone, set the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation. It is an unveiling, a revealing of God Himself. It's not just about setting times. It's not just about setting dates. It's not about just trying to figure out where everything, every piece of the puzzle fits and every news story fits here and, oh my gosh, is Trump the Antichrist? <clears throat> no, Joe Biden might be. Or how about Bernie Sanders? How about Nancy Pelosi? You see, that's not, what, that's not what this is about. That's not the main focus of the book of Revelation. And it's not the main focus of what John's about to see. The main focus of what John is about to see is God Himself. And what John's going to see, there's no way to make an image out of this. And what John's going to see John's just going to tell us what he sees. He's just going to tell us what he sees. And when, he see, when we read it, we scratch our head and think, is this my God? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I need to do something here, though. I need to go to the book of Job. I need to go to the book of Job in chapter 36... Elihu is responding to Job. And Job is, is, is saying, I'm not, I've not sinned, I'm not guilty, I haven't done this. And these three friends come along, and it's not that the, what the three friends say is so wrong. It's not like they just are out spouting, spewing error about God. They're right about God, it's just that they apply the truth in the wrong way. Because they come along and say, Job, you have sinned. Nobody goes through this unless they've sinned. And Job says, I haven't sinned. What, what, what his three friends didn't realize is sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes bad things do happen to good people. We live in a fallen world. And the whole point of the book of Job is that regardless, we trust God. 
But Elihu comes along and, he, and he's, he's hammering. They've had it. They go through these rounds. And then in chapter 36, Elihu says this in verse 24. Now he's talking about God. And what he says about God is right. And what he says about God is true. In verse 24, he says, Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked into it. Everybody looks into it. The neighbor comes, knocks on the door, and says, Who is God? We want to look into it. Man beholds it from afar. We look at it, but, but we're, not, we're not just familiar with it because we realize very quickly, God's not us. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great. Then Elihu says this, and we know Him not. We don't fully know Him. There's no way I can fully know Him. The number of His years is unsearchable. And then he goes on in chapter 37 and he, and he talks about this majesty of God and he talks about what he does. And the end of chapter 37 and verse 23, he says, The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. He resists the proud. He resists them. In other words, what Elihu is pointing out is that God is not like us. He's greater than us. He's, he's not like us. He's the creator. We're the creation. You remember Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6? This is what we read in Isaiah. Isaiah sees this, and I think it has something to do with what John sees. Also, not only Isaiah 6, but we could go to Ezekiel chapter 1, which we will when we get into the vision, and Ezekiel chapter 10. And it's amazing, Ezekiel's seeing this. And some of the descriptions that he gives, it's, it's, it's amazing because it's, it's like what John's seeing. But Isaiah sees this in Isaiah chapter 6. In verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. What is John going to see? He's going to see a throne. And throne, that throne appears ten times throughout the rest of chapter 4. A throne, a throne, a throne. And it's not just the throne, but it's the one sitting on the throne. And then two times, there are going to be thrones around the throne. So Isaiah says, the year King Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. This is exactly what John's going to see. This is what he's going to hear. Holy, holy, holy. By the way, what does it mean? The first thing we want to think of in holy is we want to think of morality. We want to think of something moral. God is pure. God is without sin. That is, that's there. But there's also something with holiness. And when the Bible talks about the holiness of God, and when it talks about us being holy because He is holy, there's also the idea that He's separate. He's separated from us. 
And also, do you know this? This is the only attribute that it's ever mentioned, it's ever put in this threefold manner. We never read in the Bible, God is sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. We never read of a song, of a hymn, of the angels saying, God is righteous, righteous, righteous. It's the only attribute in which we see it in this threefold manner. Holy, holy, holy. If it's said it twice, it's for emphasis. If it says it three times, holy, 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 it's speaking about infinite holiness. No limits to it. So there is the moral side of righteousness that's here, but that's not all that's being conveyed. What's being conveyed is God is separate from us. He's not like us. And so holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean uh, I, do, I, do, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You see, one of the things that you need to understand is that when, whenever we see people encounter God in some way, there's not a lot of high fives, there's not a lot of joking. It's not like God is sort of, you know, like some late night talk show and God brought out on stage and everybody claps and applauds and tell us a few jokes. Do a few tricks. They tried that with Christ. You remember? Why don't you do something for us? Perform for us. We'll believe in you. Why don't you do a miracle? We'll believe in you. I can just imagine they probably said, why don't you say something really smart? Maybe, maybe you'll convince us that you really know something. Can you imagine them treating the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords that way? Could you imagine this, this, when Isaiah sees this scene and sees this vision? And Could you imagine Isaiah saying, you know, something like, Ah, oh, this is great, man. God's, he is rad. He's my dad. We treat him too casually. We want to tame him. We want to domesticate him. We treat him too casually. We're too flippant about who he is. Isaiah falls on his face. Ezekiel's going to do the same thing. John's going to do the same thing. I, I, I just don't get this thinking that, that, that somehow God shows up and, and we do cartwheels and jump around and it's like a circus. God shows up, all of a sudden we understand very clearly we're in the presence of something we're not familiar with because He's not like us. 
But now here's the beautiful thing about it, and this is the thing we need to understand, because we could go through chapter 4 of Revelation, and we can get this idea of him being the creator, and transcendent, and separate, and above us, and he's not like me. Thank goodness he's not like me. His ways are not my, my, like, like my ways. We, we, we could go through the chapter, and we could get that, and we could grasp that. And if we're not careful, then, then the pendulum's going to swing all the way over to to where we begin to think, oh my gosh, he's so separate from me that I can never know him. He's so much greater that I could never know him. There's some people who, who say that. I might could know some things about him, but I could never know him. I could never know one like this. See, this is the beautiful thing about it. He's transcendent, yet he's personal. This is what he's revealed about himself. Do you know we read in the New Testament in places where it talks about God comforting you? God caring for you? God listening to you? God loving you? He's personal. I can know him. But the key is, I'm going to know him on his terms. I'm not going to know him on my terms. I'm going to know him on his terms. This is what John, this is a beautiful thing about what John writes in 1 John chapter 2. He says this in in chapter 2. He's talking about these different groups of people. In verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Did you hear that? I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. You know him. In fact, John will say this in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17... In our Lord's prayer, Jesus is praying. And this is what he says at the beginning of this prayer. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that, your, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you. Well, who's the you? Well, Jesus makes it clear that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Well, wait a minute. If he's so separate and above, then how can I personally know him? I mean, if this is eternal life, that I've got to know him. And this is not just know in an intellectual sense. This is to know personally. This is to have a personal relationship with him. Then how in the world can that possibly be? Well, it's the way John starts his book. It's the way he starts this whole letter when he's talking about Christ and this is what he says in John chapter 1 in John chapter 1 he says there was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that he might believe that all might believe through him he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This is Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people, they didn't receive Him. Speaking about the Jews. But all who did not receive Him, but all who did receive Him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see how we know him? It's because he's revealed himself in Christ. John starts 1 John by saying, he wasn't a ghost. We touched him, we felt him, we handled him, we spoke with us, we, we were with him, we ate with him. He didn't send a ghost, he didn't send a spirit, he sent his son. We can know him through his son. And then Paul will say this in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 4. This is what he says in Galatians. It's amazing. He says in in chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, generic, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, Holy Spirit. He has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You can't get much more personal than that, can you? Abba, Father. So... You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. How is it that I know this transcendent being? I come to Christ. It's the only way. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except by me, through me. That's how I come. And when I come, there's a beautiful promise James puts it this way. In James chapter 4 verse 8. Draw near to God. Wait a minute. Isaiah tried. Ezekiel try. Draw near to God. And he will. Remember the last part of that verse? He's going to draw near to you. How do I draw near? It's through Christ. I turn from my sin, I put my faith and trust in Him, and I draw near through Christ. And when I come through Christ, then God draws near to me. This is mind-blowing and amazing. That the transcendent being, the creator of all that exists, draws near to you personally when you come to Him through Christ. What else do you need? What else do I need? It is important that before we begin to plow through chapter 4, 
and chapter 5 and really begin to plow through the rest of the book of Revelation that we understand this about God. He's not like me. He's separate. And yet He's provided a way for me, a sinful human being, to know Him. And not just know Him in a casual way, but to know Him personally. So that I now become a child of God. So that I now am drawn into this relationship in which through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and cry out, Abba, Father. And this type of relationship that if I draw near to Him, He's going to draw near to me. So that no matter what happens... No matter what I face, no matter what circumstance, no matter how horrible, no matter what happens to this world, no matter what happens to me, I draw near. And the sovereign creator of the universe draws near to me. Do you know it? Have you drawn near to him in that way? Do you know him that way? Or are you still... Looking at him and saying, oh, there's no way I could ever know him. There's no way. He's just, oh, it's too great. It's, I, I'm, no, I can't. You need to come through Christ. You need to turn to Christ. You need to turn to him. You need to put your faith and trust in him. And then you begin to understand this relationship of drawing near. And it's an amazing relationship. It is an amazing relationship. If you don't know Him, cry out to Him to save you.